1: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. Importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo and help your organization move forward in exciting new directions. Now... Here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, I can promise you you're in exactly the right place. This is Digital World with Game Changers. If you're keeping track, this is episode number nine in one of our newest mini-series. The buzz today is privacy. Big, hot buzzword. Everybody's concerned. So much data flying around out there. Where is it going who sees it, and most of all, what are they going to do with it? So let's get started in a business context. All right. The long-fabled 360-degree customer insight paradigm is within reach at last. Marketing, you know out there, if you're in marketing, any company anywhere in the world, you've been waiting for this. Everybody tells you you need it. And we are now entering an era of data science-driven insights. So that 360-degree view it's just about here. Maybe you've got it. You're holding it in the palm of your hand already. What does this mean for your company? Well, your brand can now understand your customers and your prospects like never before. You've got all kinds of data coming in. You've got internal company data that you've collected on them, and you've got rising volumes of what we're going to call human-created data. What does this mean? People are talking about themselves, their likes, their wants, their needs, their preferences on social media. They're using mobile devices, which are connected. A lot. They have wearable devices. We are connected, connected, connected. But let's look at this. We still have issues because people want their privacy. There's our buzzword again. Can your company build these valuable, and I might say invaluable insights while simultaneously protecting consumers' privacy and thereby gaining their trust? If they think you're doing something bad or sinister or selling their information, they won't trust you and they're not going to do business with you. What else should you do before rushing to the, we'll call it the art of the possible and Internet of Things. That's really what a lot of what we're talking about. Sensors connectivity. Can the Internet of Things and privacy Co-exist. A lot of questions on the table. I've got a panel of three experts who are going to help us figure this out. First up on the panel, I'm delighted to welcome Eleanor Trahan-Jones, Director, EMEA and Global Communications at Trusty. i I'm going to spell that. Take the word TRUST, all in caps, T-R-U-S-T, and add a little e. And Eleanor has sent me a wonderful quote from Gary Kovacs. Here's the quote. Privacy shouldn't be the price we accept for just getting on the Internet. Eleanor, welcome to Digital World with Game Changers. How are you today?
2: I'm good. Morning, Bonnie, and thank you for inviting me to join you on the show. We're delighted
0: to have you. Brad, I'm going to ask you to raise Eleanor's level just to drop for me so I can hear her a little better. Eleanor, I love the quote from Gary Kovacs because it's so important. It's just exactly what we're talking about. Are we paying a price? So, Eleanor, welcome again and tell me why you picked this quote and related to our topic of privacy versus business insights. Talk to me.
2: Um, well, I think there's a lot of quotes out that one could have chosen. Privacy's dead, you know. There's no such thing. Get over it. And I just think that isn't true. Um, we do a lot of consumer research at Trustee, and we know that, particularly after all the Snowden revelations, people are even more aware of their privacy, um, and they're getting savvier about what to do about it. So I, I really liked, you know, this idea that it shouldn't that people aren't no longer prepared to accept that they have to give up their privacy in order to get the convenience of an app um, or, or all the benefits of going online.
0: Eleanor, we have a big challenge here. I don't know whether to continue saying privacy, the U.S. pronunciation, (laughs) or go with your much more elegant, sophisticated, and charming pronunciation of privacy. But if I start saying privacy, people won't recognize me anymore. So I think we're just... We'll be fine. (laughs) I was just thinking of that. I think we're going to have to agree that we'll say it two different ways. Eleanor, you're calling in from the U.K. Just tell us where you are today.
2: Um, I am. I'm just north of Peterborough, in a uh, very rural part of uh, rural part of England.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. We have a lot more to speak about with you during the show. Very pleased to have you on board. And you'll tell us a little bit about what trustee does later. Let me welcome our second panelist. He's Sagi Lazarov. He's a Ph.D. I should call him Dr. Sagi. He leads Ernst & Young's privacy practice. And here's a very interesting quote. I believe it's a Sagi original. Let's see if we can figure this out. He says, The answer to effective de-identification of personal information and minimizing privacy risk is not a clear black and white. It is rather a constantly morphing Fifty Shades of Grey. Sagi, welcome to the show. How are you today?
3: Very well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Bonnie.
0: Pleasure to have you. Is this an original? Is this a Sagi Lazerov original?
3: Yes. Right off my bookshelf. Yes. (laughs)
0: I want to know what the cover of the book looks like. No, no, no. This is just radio. We're okay. Sigi, this is very timely because obviously you're calling into play the name of a of a very provocative book. So talk to me about this. First of all, tell me what is de-identification and then let's talk about the risk. Go ahead, please. Well, de-identification
3: is a general term that refers to many techniques that are out there that allows taking identifiable data about people and changing the Um, the ability of that information to actually pinpoint to a person. Now, um, we had a lot of conversations about the limitations on de-identification and technology proves us again and again that it's really difficult to take away useful identifiers and really eliminate the ability of somebody to actually find out an information uh, and identify a, a person. However, my, my statement here and my, um, my message is that we need to. We need to keep trying because there are ways to minimize the exposure of personal information and allow for all these benefits that marketing and that, that, that organizations are trying to use information for. We can decrease the exposure of individuals by um, making changes to their information, de-identifying them, even to a degree, mm-hmm. not completely. Mm-hmm. And by that, preventing some of these negative consequences that consumers and, and advocates are worried about.
0: Very interesting, Sagi. I'll I just ask you a brief question before I bring on our third panelist, and then, of course, we'll get into this much more deeply during the roundtable part of the show. Question is who is working on this? adding the shades, if I may, the 50 shades of de-identification. Is this something a consumer has to sign up for? Is this something that some data scientist guru sitting in a dark corner somewhere is saying, wow, I finally got it. We can kind of sort of more protect personal information and still let marketers take advantage of it. Who's working on this, Sagi? Well,
3: uh, it's actually not a new field. And there's uh, there's interesting literature um, that that goes back 40 years even that talks about modern modern ways of doing that in specific populations and specific uh, geographical areas, for example. Um, It is a field that has statistics in it, and it has um, computer science in it. But the point that I'm advocating for is actually not to suggest to go all the way, but rather to find some sort of a gray middle ground for certain activities that happen within companies. And I would tell you that many companies are exploring and are using to some degree different ways to eliminate the sensitivity or some identifiers that are not mm-hmm. needed for certain analysis. So it, it's around us. It's not where it should be um, in terms of um, um, familiarity and in terms of uh, exposure, but, but it certainly is happening already.
0: Thank you very much, Sagi. Good, good insights. Appreciate that and welcome to the show. And let's bring on our third panelist who is no stranger to SAP Game Changers Radio. He's Tim Barker, Chief Product Officer for Data Sift. And Tim's getting to be a regular on several of our series here. And here's a very interesting quote from Tim. He said, I think this is a Mr. Barker original. He says, the future of privacy is to be positive sum, win-win, not zero sum, win-lose for both customers and companies. Tim Barker, welcome back. How are you?
4: Hi, Bonnie. I'm very good.
0: How are things? Things are good. You're getting to be a frequent panelist with us. You have a lot to say. Where are you calling from today, Tim?
4: Yeah, I'm calling from my uh, office about 60 miles west of London today.
0: And what's the weather doing out there?
4: Well, today is summer, so we're enjoying warm weather today before it ends.
0: Okay, well, we'll leave that one open with an ellipsis dot, dot, dot. Could, sounds like it could be any second from your tone of voice. Tim Parker, is this an original quote, the win-win versus the win-lose and the positive sum versus zero-zero sum? Talk to me.
4: It is, yeah, not not quite as provocative as Saeed's uh, uh, commentary on Fifty Shades of Grey, but there is some similarity <laughs> there. That often, when people think about privacy, they think about um, balancing this you know, privacy with insight. And, and often that is really portrayed as a zero-sum game. Someone has to win, someone has to lose. And I think uh, what we're seeing now in the market is emerging with the foundation of trust being the most valuable currency uh, in any business. Uh, we're seeing models emerge around positive sum so that there is a consumer win and there is also a business win as well. And I'm sure that's something we'll be, we'll be getting into over the next hour.
0: Very good. Uh, very interesting, Tim. Um, what was I going to say? All right. You're in the UK. Are you pronouncing the P word privacy or privacy? We're going to take a vote here. Are we going with Illinois' pronunciation or are we going to stick with mine?
4: <laughs> You're going to be outnumbered now. I'm oh. privacy uh, as part
3: of
0: that. Sagi, S- I'm going to have to enlist your support here. I'm not sure where you are right yeah, now. but I-
3: I- I'm on the privacy team, yes. <laughs>
0: Okay, we've never taken sides and had teams on SAP Radio. Thank you all. Really good introductions. I love the quotes. I'm going to circle back to Eleanor. Eleanor, please pronounce your last name for me. I want to make sure I get it absolutely right since you're not happy. You probably disagree with me on the privacy privacy. Is it Traharney Jones? No, it's Trahan Jones. Trahan Jones. I I'm have like it. I'll trustee, be. You don't- pronounce the e Traharn jones thank you very much eleanor i have a very important question for you what are you drinking right now what's in your cup today or what do you plan to drink after the show or what's a good something you've drunk drank drank in the recent past that is a good memory share some a little bit of a tidbit of information about eleanor with us please
2: well, I think as we've already established, I'm clearly British, and so there can only really be one thing that I'm drinking, which is our national drink, which is tea. Um, so, in fact, my favorite is a kind of Twining's Lady Grey tea. I couldn't be more stereotypical if I tried. And it's just gone quarter past three here in England, and so I'm already on about my fourth or fifth cup of tea of the day. Uh, Thank it's you very, very much. essential.
0: And Eleanor, do you put anything in the tea? Do you do you add milk or cream or, sh- god forbid, sugar? I know that's a no-no today, oh, but no, do you, do no, you doctor no, no. it up? <laughs> <laughs> just,
2: just, just milk. Um, and I put it in afterwards. There are, you know, debates to be had about that, just as the intense as the privacy-privacy one.
0: Well, Eleanor, we've had, uh, British guests on before, who have given me a lecture on the fact that Americans use tea bags, which they call dusty tea. They look down very seriously and very deprecatingly at our use of dusty tea. I've been lectured on the thickness of the china, the proper china for a proper cup of tea, and we've been lectured on the temperature of the water. Do you have anything to say on any of those, briefly?
2: (laughs) I think we should lecture less and be a little more welcoming uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to broaden the appeal of this uh, of, of a, great, of a great drink, uh, I think, however you do it. Although I think the key thing about tea is it always tastes best at home. A great, you can get a great cup of coffee out in a store often better, but tea, there's something about the water, the milk, everything, that it, it really does take, be- taste best the way you make it at home.
0: I think I will agree with that. Thank you, Eleanor. Sagi Lezeroff, what are you drinking today, or tell me a story.
3: Well, um, as I was thinking about this question coming up, I realized that what I want to talk about when it comes to drinks is not so much the drink itself, but as we are approaching summer here, um, the ice, because that has become over the, the past years something I pay a lot of attention to. I know I'm, I'm probably revealing a lot of OCD tendencies, but <laughs> I, I, just, I, I, I just find that, that we are putting so much, we're giving so much attention to the drinks, the, whether it's the coffee, the tea, or the, the liquor we use, and then we put whatever ice is available and <laughs> dilute the drink with water that have different flavors and shapes and, and different speeds of melting. So I've been I've been paying quite quite a bit of attention to um clean clear ice, large chunks, nice balls of ice. I, I just had a, a great drink um in a in a nice um, uh, Asian fusion restaurant in Tel Aviv just a few weeks ago and and they ask you what kind of ice would you like with this and they came with this big clear bowl of ice in in my in my glass and I just absolutely loved it. It melted slowly It was nice to look at, and it kept everything cool for a long time without diluting the drink.
0: Sagi, you are officially a game changer because this is the first time. I think you've made history. I probably have produced and hosted over 450 radio shows under the banner of SAP Game Changers Radio. No one has ever mentioned the ice. I think it's brilliant because you're absolutely right. Ice just usually looks terrible or it's in a, in a, the wrong shape or it melts too quickly and the taste of the water. I think we need to start a side business here, Sagi. You and I are going to talk after the show.
3: Let's hang up now and start working on our (laughs) business plan.
0: and and that's an issue for customer privacy or privacy is what do you want your ice to do in your drink oh we have so much to talk about you know Zaghi- what?
3: just a, a quick yeah. side note on yeah. that i have to say um, we we did some interesting work before with um, one of the large hotel chains and speaking to their privacy officer they mentioned how he mentioned how um, with their luxury brand of hotels they had those very famous celebrities coming and one of the things that these some of these celebrities demand in advance and have arranged for them is the kind of eyes they want to have waiting for them.
0: Never heard of it before. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And you know what? It makes perfectly good sense. We will have a conversation, Psyche. I knew I liked you. Okay. Tim Great. Barker. I Tim, I can't ask you to top those two stories, but you're certainly welcome to try Tim Barker.
4: It, there are two are two hard acts to follow, and it may seem as though we've colluded before the show because, uh, ironically, I am actually drinking an iced tea.
0: Ah, no, 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 not possible! That you took Eleanor's tea story and Sagi's ice story, and you put impossible. I I don't believe it. But seriously, I, what kind of iced tea do I, you want us that's to?
4: That's the art of innovation, isn't it? Is you take you take signals from those around you. To create a new product but I, uh, I am having a nice tea i mentioned earlier it was summer today so yes. as a big tea fan you know once or twice a year i'll make a nice jug of iced tea put it in the fridge and um and that's what i'm enjoying uh, right now
0: tim what was the flavor of the tea before you put it in the fridge with the ice we won't ask you about the ice but what what so, kind of tea was it
4: yeah so the, cl- the classic is uh, english breakfast tea um don't let it stay for too long you want to boil the boil the kettle of course And then lemon, lots of lemons in there and lots of ice. And I confess, I just sourced my ice from my own freezer.
0: <laughs> Sagi is wagging his finger at you, but maybe well we don't know what kind of water you have in the tap. So maybe I don't know. We'll just have to have us a, a whole separate show on ice. Thank you to the three of you. Great introduction. By the way, if you haven't guessed, our topic, our real business topic today, besides the business of ice and tea and ice tea, is consumer privacy or privacy if you like in the era of big human data. And the question on the table is is it possible? Now remember I said big human data, not just big data. So we're we're going to get back to that point later on in the show. I'm delighted to speak today with Eleanor Trahan Jones at Trustee, Sagi Lezarov. PhD at Ernst & Young and Tim Barker at DataSift. Great panel, good personalities, and we're ready to get down to business right after the break. Eleanor has the honor of helping me kick off the roundtable when we come back. So we're going to go away for about 90 seconds and have a little collaborative discussion, and then we're going to come back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. (music)
1: The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated, ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as more digitally demanding employees, customers, and partners, an increasing variety of digital devices, resource scarcity coupled with data abundance, and extensive business networks and complex supply chains. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Digital World with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to Bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to Digital World with Game Changers.
0: Here we are. and We're talking today about consumer privacy in the era of big human data. Is it possible? Now, big human data, we're talking about business, consumer privacy. We're talking about you, me, and everyone, no matter what you buy, where you are in the world. So we're covering everybody's interests here. We're going to kick off the roundtable with Eleanor Trahan-Jones at Trustee. And, Eleanor, before I start with your first topic, just tell us in two sentences what does Trustee do?
2: Uh, trust API provides uh, data privacy management solutions for companies all around the world who are wrestling with some of the very challenges we're kind of going, talking through today. So first and foremost, they're looking at how they can responsibly use data to kind of grow their businesses without falling foul of either legal requirements or often more importantly, consumer opinion. So that's what we help people do.
0: Thank you very much. And, Eleanor, you sent me some very copious notes here about this topic. I'm going to read a couple of statistics here, but I'd love to have you expand them. Then we'll invite Sagi and Tim to join in on the conversation. Uh, you say online privacy, well, Eleanor says online privacy, remains a significant concern for consumers with research, recent research from Mori showing that 92% of Americans concerned about their privacy when using the Internet and 42% are more concerned than they were a year ago. That's a huge rising statistic. Uh, one more thing you add, perhaps surprisingly, or I should say even more surprisingly, 45% thought that online privacy was more important than national security. Blow it out of the water. Wow. Eleanor, talk to me. Interesting statistics. Uh, what do you think?
2: Yeah, and I think the the kind of initial headline figure that people are concerned about their privacy is probably no great surprise. If you ask somebody that question, it's a kind of default answer. I think what gets really interesting is how it's growing. So the 42% more concerned than last year shows how important this topic is for businesses to get right. Um, It's no longer something you can ignore. Last year saw the kind of highest number of data breaches uh, recorded in the U.S., this is something the year before saw all the Snowden revelations. It's something very top of mind uh, for consumers when they're interacting with your, with your business online. And so the fact that they prioritize this higher, uh, you know, a large number prioritize this higher than national security. The other thing that I don't know if you're going to come on to this is that often people say, oh, they say they're worried, but they don't actually, they do the opposite. Well, what we're starting to kind of, try and dig into is what do they do about it once they're concerned. Um, So we also found another stat was that um, 77% so three out of four people moderate their online behavior because of their privacy concerns. So that's that's the bit where it starts to kind of bite for businesses. That means they're either not clicking on ads or they're, you know, not providing information. They're kind of withholding certain details because they don't trust the company necessarily with that information. So those are the things that I think – really are interesting about this as opposed to the kind of overall, yes, we're worried.
0: Wow. Sagi Lazarov, join us. What do you think? Agree with the statistics? Any comments on what Eleanor shared? Uh,
3: the, stati- the statistics make um, a lot of sense. Uh, I, I, am, I, I am curious about defining the problem because online now means so many things. Um, mm-hmm. Online used to be us sitting in front of a computer, but right now online is all around us. Um, and our cars talk, and our, um, our phones are, are a, the device we spend a lot of time with. Now we have watches that, that do certain things. Um, I, I, think we are, I, I think that we are truly missing a good, a good set of vocabulary to discuss these things. We, we have all of these developments that come so quickly at us, and the solutions are not coming from us at that same speed. And I, I think that, that that to me is one of the more interesting pieces of this of this conversation is what can be done. And I mean, the identification that I mentioned earlier is one way to approach it, but there are other ways as well, and, and we should explore more of that.
0: Interesting, uh, Tim Barker, join the conversation. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think certainly we're uh, we're in this era of ubiquitous data. Um, <clears throat> as he uh, mentioned we 're not really uh, there 's data that 's visible to us every post that we that we make on social network every time we click um, but then there, there's a there 's a set of perhaps more invisible more secondary data data that is generated from the devices we use or you know my mobile traffic and so I, I think those are the areas of the the kind of um, Less uh, front of mind areas, where also the market is still is still evolving and learning. We're now in the era now of you know internet-enabled televisions that can judge hand gestures, and um, and with all of these things, the thing to be I guess cautious and and careful of is the un- unintended consequences of some of this technology. You you may have seen in the news uh, about four or five months ago, story about the TV manufacturer that was. Uh, Able to record audio and hand gestures when you were in the room with the TV, and it was sending that data unencrypted over the internet. So clearly, that raised the concern of effectively your TV is now listening to your conversations. Um, So there is an there is uh, I think there are there's a race for new technology and the art of the possible, where perhaps. Traditionally, those organizations haven't really been custodians of customer data before. And so I, I do think that there is, um, now, is, now is the time to really help uh, organizations themselves to really think through what kind of controls and compliance they want there. And I do think a lot of them can learn from what we've seen over the last five to seven years with things like social networks. As, as that really has become almost a, you know, a mainstay of mainstream kind of consumer society now.
0: Very well put. Uh, and that's our, our human-generated or self-generated data. I want to underscore one more note here, one more statistic from Eleanor's comments. And Eleanor, Eleanor and everybody, I'll have you comment on this, and then we'll look at some of Sagi's topics. Eleanor, your notes also say, the, the impact of this on businesses is that 57% of those surveyed in this Ipsos MORI MORI study, uh, 57% had not clicked on an online ad and 25%, that's one in four, had stopped proceeding with an online transaction before they completed it. That means an order was not placed or a comment was not made or an inquiry was not done or something didn't happen that didn't put money in the pocket of whoever was selling them something or trying to sell. Eleanor, this is I don't know if this is good news or bad news. It's bad for businesses, but does this mean that people are – getting annoyed and frightened at that last minute before they click submit or whatever they're doing. What do you think the implications of this are for businesses?
2: Um, I think, as I said at the start, people are getting savvier. So they're becoming more conscious of their online privacy. They're becoming more conscious of what they can do um, in order to manage it. And that's good news. Um, Mm -hmm. For businesses, it means this is something that they need to Take seriously if they're not already doing it. But I think the positive here, coming to I think something that Tim said, is about the win-win. What we are also seeing is that where companies invest in you know good privacy practices and privacy management, actually people are happier to share more data with them. And so it's not necessarily all bad news if if they do do things that and help to build consumer trust, then they can actually do more and get ahead of the competition by data, which is obviously the fuel for so many, um, so much business growth now.
0: Eleanor, quick question. I'm looking here farther down your notes. You say new analysis shows that 14% of the top IoT, Internet of Things companies, did not even have a discoverable privacy policy, let alone a policy that you could read or understand easily. This seems to be a big problem. Are more and more people looking for a privacy policy to know what they might be incurring if they do click, if they do submit, if they do order? Any thoughts on that? And then I want Siggy and Tim in on this. Go ahead, Eleanor.
2: Yeah, I mean, privacy policies traditionally have been the route where a company is set out, um, you know, to its consumers, the kind of the deal, really, um, in terms of how how that company manages their, their data. Um they're obviously still very important, but I think as we look at things like, um, you know, connected devices, as Sadiq, Sadiq said, we need to actually think more broadly about um, how we communicate around privacy and data ownership and data use and data storage with consumers. Um, there's introduction things like short-layer notices, um, just in time, you know, at the point that you're about, the data's about to be used, you're you want to use Google Maps then someone says, we need to know your location to do it. So that kind of notice um, is increasingly becoming best practice. And I think things like the Internet of Things and its kind of fast arrival will increase pressure to move down some of those routes um, in addition to the kind of basic privacy policy that a company may have on their website.
0: Thank you. Dr. Lazaroff Sagib, talk yes. to us. What do you think about policies? So before
3: I get to the policies, I'd like to make a comment about um, um, Eleanor's um, observation about the statistics. Uh, And Eleanor was mentioning that consumer becomes savvier. I I would use a different word. I would say that they are aware, um, Mm -hmm. but a lot more aware. But I think that we have an issue of confusion. I think that consumers, uh, part of the reason they might be apprehensive is not because they truly understand what will happen with their information, but actually exactly the opposite. They understand that there is the potential that things will be done with the information. I think there is a lot of hype in the media on what some of these um, high-tech companies might be doing with that information. I think consumers are confusing technical capabilities that might be out there um, the fact that they may not have felt personally uh, ramifications, and media coverage of large data breaches that are actually a security issue, not a privacy issue in many ways, but um, make this this triangle of of uh, variables not necessarily build us um, knowledge as much as make, make us a lot more apprehensive because we think that there is a relationship there. Maybe maybe it's coming to hit us very soon. But I, I can't really say what's going to happen if I'll do it. So I think we have a, a big issue of education and a big issue of understanding what what the variables are and what the implications are. I think um, I, I agree with, with Eleanor completely about the fact that notices are important and need to be shorter. I think that, unfortunately, thus far they have failed us, uh, as important as they, as they are. Nobody reads them. I mean... Many people don't spend the time to, to read them, and, and even if they do, it's difficult to make sense of them. I, I I think we need smarter, easier solutions, not the expectation that every time I want to engage in a quick transaction, I have to really get my lawyer on, on, on my side and, and read this mm-hmm. legal document and make sense of it.
0: Interesting comments. Tim Barker, can't wait to hear what you have to add. Go ahead.
4: Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, I, you're seeing some industries um, – uh, really um, innovating in this area because uh, I think the other speakers are right. Privacy is can be a dull subject for all of us. It's only privacy outrages that generate great media interest. So um, I think what what you are seeing, and, and you know, if you look at the the, the social networks, the platforms, there are a few things now that are just part and parcel for what we how we interact. Where well, you can see. What's known as privacy by design—the idea of basically building privacy into the core of technology, as opposed to trying to manage it at the edge through some agreement or you know uh, or, or additional a layer of technology. So, for example, something that we do probably all day is every time we—if um, you ever use uh, an application on Facebook or uh, we'll log in with Facebook—and something like fifty-two percent of of us use services like log in with Facebook to to gain access to an app. Um, but that's that takes you through a process where you can control the data that's visible to another technology. So I think that like all things, the challenges is is doing this um, sophisticated uh, set uh, of of exchange of data in a way that retains control um, and uh, in an understandable way for us and humans as part of it. Um, and I I do think if you look at spectrum of technologies, you've got this entire new emerging area of internet of things and wearables, and it feels like the Wild West a little bit of drone helicopters and Elon Musk. Um, and then you look at the last sort of 10, 15 years, we've seen markets like social and mobile mature um, through as we've um, come to, you know, uh, really understand the value of data and the value of the controls around that data.
0: Thank you, Tim. Eleanor, any comments on this before I wrap this part up and go on to some notes from Saki?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I, just, um, I think actually the Internet of Things offers us an opportunity. Um, it's, it's arrived at a time when I think privacy is much more in the consciousness of corporations higher up the risk register than it perhaps was before. Um, we're bringing together next week 200 privacy and IoT professionals into the same place to actually discuss um, you know some of these issues and it's one of the first i think opportunities to actually get privacy by design into these products and um already we're seeing industries like the automotive sector uh, which developed and launched principles uh, privacy principles um in november last year where sectors and industries are taking a lead um, and kind of setting privacy and baking it in from the start
3: can can I, can I add yeah. another another Please aspect do. here Sure. Um, uh, I think that there's some interesting lessons to be learned, and uh, I think the automotive industry is, a, is, a, is an interesting one um, in how they're advancing the what they call the connected car and the, mm-hmm. the challenge of the fact that the car will have so much information about us and about our behavior and where we are and, and that can talk to insurance, that can talk to marketers and, and, and all of that. You can look also at a very interesting case study for radio frequency identifiers. These are the little chips that ex- will exist soon enough instead of the barcodes on products. Um, they, they would be, and and those radio frequency identifiers were a big. Um, there was a big um, um, uh, controversy around them about ten years ago. So when when Walmart and Procter and Gamble start. Yeah, de- Walmart demanding it for Procter and Gamble and other large companies start putting it in some of their products because that 's really where the future is and consumer were concerned that now that we walk around with those different tags of radio frequency identifiers we we can be identified remotely by um, aiming a, a reader at our clothes, our shoes, our watches, and, and know who we are uh, and the industry actually did very took some very smart Steps toward talking to regulators, talking to consumers, explaining, and, and you don't hear any more concerns about RFID. The difference is ben, between automotive and RFID and the discussions we're having today about online privacy and the Internet of Things is that when we talk about Internet of Things and online privacy, we're talking about companies we can't really control. Uh, anyone, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the cost of entry is so low, unlike being deep in manufacturing or building cars, the cost of entry in this industry is so low that you can't really manage such a large and ever-changing industry and say, "Let's set up a set of standards. Let's let's all follow that. It makes sense for us because you're always going to have those um, uh, those that will try to make a quick buck and try to make something quick out of uh, out of a business and move on, and they can uh, damage the reputation and create fear for everybody else."
2: If I may butt in, Bonnie, I agree entirely that it's very difficult. I think it's going to increasingly be difficult to use the Internet of Things as an overarching term because, as you say, um, there's significant differences between what we're seeing with the industrial Internet being led by the likes of GE um, and Cisco and and developments on a scale when you're looking at smart cities, when you're looking at automotive, when you're looking at healthcare applications. The barriers to entry in those sectors are very, very high. They're equally, they're already regulated often um, and established perhaps routes for consent and things like that. That's very different from, as you say, the wearable market or the smart home market where there is lower cost of entry, a larger number of players. planning perhaps for the shorter term. When you're building a car, you're looking at 2020 already at this point. Um, when you're looking at a new smart home application, you're probably looking to launch very, very shortly. So, so I agree with you. I think we're talking a very broad subject, which actually has very different challenges within each individual um, industry sector.
0: Thank you. Really good points. Tim, I'm about to move on to something in Sagi's notes, but we haven't heard from you in a while. Any comments on what Eleanor and Sagi were just discussing? <laughs>
4: Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's a good point around the cost of entry. Clearly, um, mm-hmm. you know there is an explosion in in companies that are servicing marketing tech. You know, um, you know, technology to serve marketers didn't really exist uh, ten years ago beyond email marketing, and now there's a universe of nine hundred plus thousands plus companies that are really uh, growing uh, out of this marketing budget, which is there around. Providing data to either find audiences or reach audiences. Um, so I think it's a really good point. And one thing that astonishes me, um, that really companies fail to, uh, fail to act on is, uh, you know, there is the art of the possible of what could we do if we had access mm-hmm. to this data? You know, data is available through APIs, you know, the ability to integrate and extract data, whether it be through Mobile applications or whether or through social networks or just online <clears throat> and one thing that really um, it continues as a surprise is uh, it 's not just the the kind of legal privacy frameworks that sometimes um, innovators forget to to go through it 's also things like terms of service, most terms mm-hmm. of service for any service, whether it be a social network like LinkedIn, um, which has a gold mine of, of business professional data or Facebook, which has a huge um, corpus of of, uh, of consumer data, is each of these APIs comes with a set of terms of service. And so what we tended to see, what I've seen, is companies racing to the, the art of the possible without really looking at the control that networks are, are putting in place to really govern how data should be used. And most recently, you know, there was a... Big, uh, huge outcry, I guess, from the community of developers when LinkedIn shut effectively shut down a large number of their APIs because they were being misused by a large number of, of startups and uh, innovators. And so it then means that that then they're effectively these data hubs have to become um, the, the, both the custodians for the data and then also the police to enforce good good usage of that. Um, and so I think that's what you're, you, we are seeing an emergence of as well, is the lines are being drawn slightly differently so that customer data or personally identifiable information does not get exposed through these services. Facebook, with their recent announcement of something called topic data, can now provide marketers with insights into audiences um, mm-hmm. and activity across Facebook, but never the personal details of anyone on Facebook. So I think this redrawing the lines to ensure that, um, you know, data is used for the intended purpose.
0: Interesting point, Tim. When you said never with personal identifiable data, I'm going to add we can only hope so, and that's a perfect segue for me to go into some notes here from Sagi Lezarov. Sagi, interesting comments here. You say a significant part of the problem we're facing is the invisible Back office activities with the data that precede its public release, and let me add one more sentence here, and you add, and I think this is the key to what I'd like you to to address, Sagi, is as the value and or risk of the data increases, so should the monitoring of the people that work with it. Talk to me, Sagi. What are we implying here? What are you implying here?
3: Well what i'm saying um is really a reaction to what um we often see when we work with companies. We get to see companies from from behind the scenes and and I have to say right now both in both the u s market and um in many other countries where we where we work on these on these matters, we see that there's a big discussion about writing policies and and very nice policies. Some organizations write long long many policies and there's training. And there might be even posters in the elevator about customer confidentiality and all that. But the solutions to make those policies stick are not there. Um, The market is not very strong right now um, about protecting the data, about creating solutions that would allow them to actually make sure that they understand what's happening with the information when they're processing it. Uh, Behind the scenes, those things that that end up being released, that's after things have been reviewed and many people have touched it, but how many databases do we have? Where is our information? Are we protecting it accordingly based on its true sensitivity? That, I have to say, um, is is a big area for for us to improve on, And, and I'm talking small companies and big companies. The technology is not necessarily there. It's only starting to emerge and mm-hmm. until we get control over those activities, I mean, uh, if, if you think about what we see as, a, as, as, as consumers, that's the tip of the mountain. And there's so much that we don't even see that has to do with all these databases that are being created and, and worked on and, and aggregated and shared that is completely invisible every once in a while we hear about a breach we hear about some incident because there's a regulation that requires that kind of disclosure but do we really know what's happening with it and and i think that much of the risk to individuals is those is the lack of control behind behind the walls behind the doors
0: Interesting seggy uh, It just reminds me of something i 've always had a, a gripe or a beef with you know medical data. we have HIPAA laws you can 't disclose you have to be careful about total privacy, patient privacy, your medical records, you have to give permission to share them with other people in your family, with insurance companies, with other physicians. Great, you go to a doctor 's office you 're sitting in a waiting room, you like to think you 're anonymous. there are people you may not want people to know that you 're there. You wear dark glasses, and then the nurse comes out and says. Dr. Sagi laser off. Dr. Schwartz will see you next. And all of a sudden, everybody in the waiting room knows why you're there. They know that you're there. I've always had a beef with name-calling name, name calling out in a doctor's office, which to me completely violates the whole purpose of privacy. And I've been in hospitals where patients are identified on a board in terms of going in and out of the operating room by a number that is given to the relatives so that it's all digital. Any quick comment on that, Sagi?
3: Yeah, let me... I, I, I like the example you brought, um, uh, and, and, and I, 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 I have yet to see people wait with sunglasses in the waiting room, but I can see that. <laughs> but it brings, it, it, brings the context, it brings the topic of context. Privacy is all about context. Yes. One thing that is sensitive in one setting is completely public and, and, and an issue in another. Um, we ha- we see, we've seen an, uh, an increase in the um, theft of medical information for the purpose of insurance fraud. And what those people do, those criminals do, is they go to the receptionist um, in, a, in, a, in a location, in a medical facility that, of people with chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. Let's say it, it's for cancer, it's for uh, maybe it's a dialysis center, and they buy names of people's. And they basically hit. I mean, you think a name a name would not be something sensitive, but in the context of I'm getting treated here, that says a lot about you.
0: You bet and it does.
3: Mm-hmm. That name alone allows them to start hitting insurance companies with claims, knowing that people with chronic diseases <gasps> have a lot of claims against their name. So it's not likely that the insurance company would pick up on fraud very quickly with all the the other legitimate claims that these people have against them. And they basically have fake. Claims for medical services were never rendered, sent under these people's names, and collect the money. And that is a name in context, only the name.
0: Interesting. And there's yes, good good point. Thank you, Eleanor. Tim, anybody want to chime in on what we've been discussing with Sagi?
2: Eleanor. Um, no, I, I think you've just hit the nail on the head in terms of it all being about context. I mean, had they called out your name in a in a restaurant or uh, a completely different setting, one wouldn't mind at all. So I think it's a it's a great way of bringing home uh, the let's say the contextual element to privacy. So. Thank you, Tim Barker. Any comments on this before we
0: move on?
4: Uh, I guess if, if that's a really really good example of why this is Fifty Shades of Grey as opposed to black and white. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good point. I love it when we tie back to the tie back to the quotes by the way Sagi I always wear dark glasses in a, in a doctor's waiting room just because I am a known personality here. I have several TV shows I produce and host on Long Island and sometimes I don't want people to know that I'm somewhere where I just want to be anonymous. So there, Suggie. Uh Tim Parker, I want to pick up on one more comment here about why consumers want their information used because we're just seven minutes away from the end of the show. And as Tim knows, we need to save, save a couple of minutes for predictions with all three of you. So, Tim, just one comment here. You say 73% of consumers prefer to do business with brands that will use their personal information to make their shopping experiences more relevant. And this comes from Digital Trends. Quick comment on that. Tim. So people want their information used. They want to walk in a store and get the right coupons, right? They want to be greeted by name. They don't want to have to struggle with what should I buy my husband or wife on Valentine's Day. Oh, you remember what I bought the last three February 14th. So how do, how do people expect to balance privacy with please use my information and give me a delightful experience, Tim?
4: Well, that, that I guess, you know, you've summed it up. You know, mar- the art of marketing mm-hmm. is the right message, to the right audience at the right moment. We all have this. We've all had those serendipitous moments where we've gone onto Amazon and didn't even think we wanted that product that it then presents to us. Um, So that the art of serendipity, the the ability to predict or preempt what might be of interest to you, is a key part of what we want or expect from great companies. And so the challenge is, is. The companies that could harness all this data, as Amazon has has done as a great example, to create better experiences is one of those areas where there is a a positive sum. There is a win-win as part of that. And I think it's just about making sure that that consumers get a benefit from how this data is processed or how this data is turned into insight, because that way it feels like a fair value exchange there. Um, You know, recommendation, personalization, predictive technologies, these are all the things that are all clustered around this big topic of big data, because it's not the data that's the important thing, it's the computation around that.
0: Thank you very much. Guess what? We have just enough time. Let's see, five minutes left. Let's give you each 90 seconds for a really fast, we'll call it the lightning round in the crystal ball segment. So Eleanor Trahan-Jones, I would like you to tell me if you can fast forward this conversation to the year 2020 or if you prefer another future time, it could be five minutes from now or 20 years from now, what would be different about our conversation about consumer privacy in the era of big human data? Will we still be in that era? And is the privacy possible, or the privacy? Eleanor, 90
2: seconds, predictions, go. Privacy is possible and will be still incredibly important in the future. I'm going to steal my quote, actually. I had an alternative quote from the beginning, which is from Eric Schmidt at Google. Um, he was speaking at Davos earlier this year, and this is what he said. In the future, the Internet will disappear. You won't even sense it. It will be part of your presence all of the time. And I think as we crystal ball gaze. We're already starting to see that with the Internet of Things, where homes, cars, cities, even clothes, and our own bodies are becoming connected to the Internet of smart devices. So it will no longer be a separate thing, but the kind of prism through which we view and control everything, and that includes our own privacy.
0: Thank you very much. Brief and to the point, great comments, and thanks for the extra quote. Dr. Sagi-Lazeroff, predictions, 90 seconds, go. So
3: I, I think right now um, we're at the age where a lot of organizations um, are busy with the term accountability and I, and I think it's it's a good conversation to have, and it's the right, it's the right conversation to have because we we only recently passed from risk management and compliance management in privacy to actually treating privacy as a as a topic from an accountability for an organization rather than check the box of requirements. I think that in 2020, we will move to the next level of discussion and talk about automation of controls for privacy. I think we would move from just talking about accountability that doesn't bring down some of the granularity and move to talk about how effective can I manage the promises I made or the expectations my stakeholders have. Can I really, really control the data? Do I know where it is? And can I make sure I know how it moves inside my organization and out so that my promises are kept and the expectations can be met?
0: Thank you very much. Tim Barker, you're up last, but of course not least, predictions. 90 seconds, go.
4: Uh, well, five years seems a long way out, but I, I'll look back. I'll, I'll look to the future by looking back at a, a book that's a few years old now, which was written by the author Doc Searles. Um Doc Sells famously wrote the book The Clue Training Manifesto, which is well worth a read um, to kind of like talk uh, back in the day, sort of ten, fifteen years ago, looking at essentially the world that we live in now. Um, what he predicted, which I think is a is a is a really uh, noteworthy kind of view of the future, is what he called the intention economy. Um, so, where basically custom, the concept of customer relationship management, where the brand is in control, is supplanted or replaced with the idea of vendor relationship management where the consumer is in control now it may not you know it may not seem that futuristic because essentially the the rarest commodity on the planet right now is attention, so companies that can really um, create products which really capture consumer attention and bring relevant products and services to them are going to be a much stronger position. So I'd like to think of a future where com- consumers are in control of their data and they can grant access to vendors that well, they want to engage with depending on where they are in the purchase or trust life cycle.
0: Thank you, Tim. And a quick note. I found the book on Amazon. It's The Intention Economy when customers take charge. And the author is Doc DOC Searles, S E A R L S. So anybody who's interested, go find it. There it is. I want to thank our three extraordinarily interesting and compelling panelists and well spoken and articulate. I can't say enough. Eleanor Traharn Jones. Thank you. Sagi Lasaroff. Thank you. Tim Barker, thank you. And thank you to Phil Dervin, the sponsor of this part of Digital World with Game Changers. He shares the series with Brad Borkin at SAP. Uh, Tim Barker, thanks for help putting together the panel. Brad and the Business Channel team, we're out of time, and I'm going to say I'll be back in an, just one hour from now with a live edition of Business Innovation with Game Changers. Interesting topic. And uh, You'll have to tune in and find out what it is, and here's my call to action. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I plan to be in an hour when I come back live. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Digital World with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.